0: When Chuck said that he was 12, 45 years ago, Eden went, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, Our second scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 10. Uh, We're looking at verses 26 through 39. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others... I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh let's see how well this goes. Uh I hope that y'all don't think this is a fluke by the time this is over and done with. <laughs> uh let's to start off, we've got a little something for us. That we'll talk about in a minute. We played marbles growing up. Marbles? Marbles. All right. There's a sippy cup full of marbles. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh but first I want to talk about how this is a dangerous book. The Bible is rough sometimes. Uh, For those that don't know, uh, we tend to follow the lectionary and what we preach here. So the lectionary is kind of a calendar that over the course of three years, you touch pretty much every part of the Bible. But it's rough sometimes because it tends to put you in a situation where you have to preach something that you're uncomfortable with, that you don't know the answer to rightly. Uh, I once heard an Episcopal priest explain that he liked the lectionary specifically for this reason. That it made him wrestle with the most part with the parts of Scripture that don't just immediately fit with his worldview. So that's what happened to me this week, to the point where when I started reading it, uh, I almost picked the Old Testament text or picked the text out of Romans because they were easier. But then I sat on it for a little while and realized that the the, the Gospel text this week has some good stuff in it, and that it would be good for us to unpack it together. But first, let's play a little game with these marbles. How many marbles do you think is in this jar? Does anybody want to make a guess? Did you say 87? Anybody else want to make a guess? All of these, 72. You think? See, that's when you'd be wrong because I put a die in here specifically to mess with you because I knew you were going to do that. It's not all. This whole thing is not completely full of marble. You think some? These are my marbles. I found them this morning. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable. I did not tell Chuck I was doing this. There are 88 marbles in here, and he just said 87. You did say 87. Yes, you are the closest without going over. I'm not giving you these marbles. No, because Eden saw me bring these marbles into the church this morning. She said, Those are my marbles. <laughs> Our marbles. She hasn't seen them in a while because she put one in her mouth, so I hit them. I don't know how you did that. We'll get back to the marbles in a second. So I asked that about the marbles today, because there's two parts of our scripture. Uh, one part is a lot easier, and the second part's a lot rougher to go through, uh, but I think the two of them go well together, and so we're going to touch on both of them, and after that we'll see how it goes. Uh, but the marbles reminded me of the first part. So our text today is part of the part of Matthew that is called the missionary discourse, it's one of five discourses in, in Matthew, the, the Sermon on the Mount being one of them. This is the second one. This is Jesus talking to his 12 disciples before he sends them out on what is called a lot of times the Little or Lesser Commission in comparison to the Great Commission. In this text, uh, Jesus is sending the disciples out to Israelite communities to tell them that the kingdom of God is near. So if you were paying attention, you just caught why this is called the, the Little Commission. Does anybody know why it's called the Little Commission instead of the Great Commission? It's way too early for you all not to be paying attention to me this morning. Now, uh, uh, It's called the Little Commission and not the Great Commission because it's only to Israelite communities. The Great Commission goes is everywhere. Uh, so basically, they're just saying, go to the places around. So you might be thinking, if Corey's wrestling with this text, he just gave us the out is because it's superseded by the Great Commission. But that's not the case. Because though the instructions at the beginning are about being out to Israelite communities. This is not necessarily the truths that we just heard in the scripture reading today. Aren't necessarily about that. Uh, so though the instructions might not apply to us, the truths there seem to go beyond that one short time period, and so they still stick through. Though if you ever hear people say, "If somebody doesn't like you, then knock the sand off your sh- off your sandals and never deal with that again," that's from the instructions to that commission that it tells us not to deal with anymore. So I don't know if. That tells you not to listen to folks when they say that, but uh, you can take that as you may. So Jesus informs the di- disciples that persecution will be coming when they, when they go out and talk to him. But he basically says in the text before this, they're persecuting me. I've taught you. Of course, they'll persecute you if you're doing what I tell you to do because they're persecuting me. It makes sense. Um, they're not going to take too kindly to you. Uh, so he's preparing them for this persecution for this rough time. But in the middle of that, he takes the time to stop and tell them not to fear. Uh, but I'll tell you what, if you go and look at Jesus throughout the Gospels, if you look at the Bible as a whole, you're going to see some variation of that phrase a, a lot. Pretty much in every book of Scripture is there some sort of exhortation to not fear. Uh, an angel will say it as soon as they show up. Uh, Jesus or God says it to Abraham as soon as he sees Abram for the first time. Through a burning bush, no less. But um, yeah, the the idea of not having fear is a very pivotal part of Scripture, and it's a very pivotal part of what Jesus has to say. You can you can't throw a rock in the Gospel of Luke without hearing Jesus say it, and here he is saying it again in Matthew. Uh, he's basically reminding reminding us that fear is not the way the Kingdom of God operates. So our text today has three different "Fear not." And I want to go through those real quick because I think each one of them is pretty important. <sighs> His first fear not is kind of an eschatological fear not, which is means that it deals with the end times, that deals with the with the end. So basically, God says, Jesus says through God, and God says through Jesus. Sorry about that. Um, he says, at some point, everything will be good. Do not fear because. The things might not be good now. Things will be good in the end. Things will be good at some point. That reminded me a lot of myself in high school. Uh, I was a very anxious, fearful kid in high school. I'm still anxious and fearful, but uh, I was especially anxious and fearful in, in high school. I basically went through this cycle of being anxious about not having a date for three weeks, and then I'd be anxious about having bad grades for three weeks, and then I'd be anxious about not having a date for three weeks. And that would continue until summer, when it would just be three months of being anxious about not having a date, and then the cycle would repeat. (laughs) Um, So if, but all the time, people kept telling me, things are going to get better, and they did. If I could go back in time and tell high school Corey that things would get better, he wouldn't listen, but I would still try to tell him that. Um, Because that was the other thing. Besides being anxious and fearful, he thought he knew everything. Um, Other things that he still thinks. But... uh, So even though I didn't think things would get better, they did. And that's what Jesus is saying. Things might not seem good right now, but things will be good later, even if they're past you, if they're, you know, centuries. God will redeem the world at some point. Jesus' second fear not is a claim of the power of God in comparison to the power of our opposition. Jesus says uh, in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, Jesus is playing with a little word play in that verse. Uh, he's using the, the same Greek word twice, but that has multiple meanings. In the first meaning, it is basically this kind of fear that we think of when we think of fear. Fear, trembling, terror, anxiety, these sorts of things. But The second one, he's saying uh, the kind of fear that we talk about when we talk about God. Veneration, reverence, obedience. Uh, fear God in that way. So he's not painting God as this vengeful apparition that's just tossing people in hell like he's playing darts. But instead, he's saying, look how feeble what you're scared of is in comparison to how strong God is. So that's our second reason not to fear. But the third fear not is why I pulled out a sippy cup full of marbles. Jesus points out to his disciples that they have no reason to fear because the God of the universe knows the number of hairs on their heads. The God of the universe knows when a little sparrow hits the ground. So surely our God knows everything there is to know about us. Now when we hear that, we think about what is called God's omniscience, which means that God uh, knows everything. He's an all-knowing God. But what I see when I think about that isn't that God knows everything, but rather it says, when the sparrow hits the ground, there in verse 29, it says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. So first, a little aside. The reason it said not two sparrows are sold for a penny. penny er, sparrows were the cheapest form of protein that were available uh, in that day. It was just really small bird. It could be you get a little bit of meat off of it. And so the poorest of the poor, that's what they were eating. Uh, so basically, what was already considered you know, unworthy to a lot of people, even just as a food source, as a living thing, God is there when that sparrow hits the ground. So I don't see that as God knowing about it. I see that as God's presence, a talk of God being there for the sparrow being there in a bird's saddest moment. So if God is there in a bird's saddest moment, is God not also there in our saddest moment when we feel the most fearful, when we're upset? And that's the thing about saying that God knows the number of hairs on your head. I don't know about y'all, I don't have the same number of hairs that I had on my head this morning. Nonetheless, the same amount of hairs that I had on my head when I was born. So I think that says a lot about God knows, is, it's, you can't know how many hairs have fallen off of my head this morning unless you're with me, unless you saw the shower this morning. So God is with us, God is with us to the end, and God is more powerful than our opposition. Those are our three fear nots. Uh, but let's put those on the back burner for a second so we can talk about the part of this scripture that has actually been bothering me over the last week. It's actually a part of scripture that I've been wrestling with for a long time, because to me, one of the most pivotal parts of Christianity is nonviolence, is peacemaking. Isaiah says that Jesus is the prince of peace. So how is it Jesus can, without batting an eye in verse 34 say, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This verse, along with the verses that follow it, have been kind of a dark spot to me for a number of years since I started studying the, a, a theology of nonviolence. And so this week, I've been working through it. And I'm going to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit to show you how I work through stuff in this situation. I've basically got three steps. I put, it, I put the, the verse or section in question that's bothering me up against the themes that I see throughout the Bible and try to see where the dissonance is. Now I see where it sits in the narrative of the life and teaching of Jesus specifically, because that's how we read scripture through the life of Christ. That's why we're Christians. Finally, I look at it in the context that it presents itself in in the book in question. So let's start this off. We're in Matthew's gospel, which is home of the Sermon on the Mount, like I told you all earlier. The Sermon on the Mount to me is the greatest treatise of nonviolence in the world. When Jesus is standing up there and saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will in, they will be called children of God. Did you all see me almost get a beatitude mixed up? I'm sorry about that. And he also says, you heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's just a flavor of it. It's all over the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew also holds, narratively, constant threat of violence to Jesus, but he never retaliates in kind. So we already see this dissonance between what Jesus is doing, both in the whole of the scripture and also in the section of Matthew that we're in immediately. There's a short story author named Anton Chekhov. I don't know if any of y'all have ever heard of him before. He's considered like one of the like greatest in the genre of short stories. And he's got a quote that I normally hear of before I hear of Chekhov's actual works. I've never actually read anything by him. I just know this one quote. Uh, but he's talking about a story with a gun in it. and Basically, he says, if there's a gun on the mantelpiece and you mention it in the first act, that gun best go off by the third act. Basically, he's saying, don't waste our time with window dressing if that window dressing doesn't affect the story. Uh, and so a lot of times you'll hear people talk about Chekhov's gun, and especially in a movie or something like that, if somebody's like, hey, I've got this fancy necklace. That fancy necklace will save the universe by the end of the movie. I promise you every time. Uh, it's Especially these days, folks love Chekhov's guns in movies. Um, but I was thinking about that a lot this week when I was thinking about this scripture, because Jesus stands up in front of them and says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. And then 16 chapters later we have Jesus standing in Gethsemane with Judas and a whole mess of Roman soldiers showing up. And it, in Matthew's text, it doesn't say it was Peter. It just says one of his followers pulls out a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. Actually, it, doesn't, it does say the ear in Matthew. But what it doesn't say is Jesus, when Jesus rebukes Peter and says, anyone who lives by the sword dies by the sword, Jesus then goes and heals the man's ear, right? So if Jesus set the gun up in the first act and the gun goes off in the third act, Jesus does not use that to uphold the sword, to say that this was right action, but instead say that it's wrong action. He flips it on his head. reminds me of that uh, quote from uh, the Flannery O'Connor story where the guy says Jesus turned everything upside down. Because that's what he's doing. He's subverting the story. Uh, But that section of the Garden of Gethsemane, it reminds me also of in Tertullian's writings in the early church, when Tertullian said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian soldier. So with that understanding, what is the sword in chapter 10? When Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. What does that mean? To me, that's talking about the, not the violence of a sword, but instead it is a metaphor for the way the sword separates. It is a blade that separates. And that's what we see in, in the following section, where it says that, that Jesus puts son against father, against mother, daughter against mother, and then for some reason daughters against mother-in-laws, but they already fight anyway, so I don't know why they mention that. <sighs> Jesus must not have met my wife and my mom. Um. So it, with this separation, what is Jesus talking about? And that's why I bring this idea of fear back and look at it for a minute. Because when we talk about the kingdom of God, it seems like such a foreign idea because we don't live under a king. We don't live in a kingdom in the United States. So it's a weird language. But if we think about it as a constitution and we think about, what our Constitution is. It is a collection of thoughts that we have written down. Sorry, it is a living document that we live by. It kind of creates our DNA as people. If we think of it that way, the Constitution of the Kingdom of God would have love God and love your neighbor. We understand that. Jesus made that pretty clear. But I think with the amount of times that he says it in the Gospels, that fear, not fearing would be a close third. I think it would be right there in you know, Freedom of the Press, somewhere in that area of things that we don't put at the top, but we put pretty close. Um, so with that understanding, the kingdom of God is what's doing the separation, right? Uh, the kingdom of God is what is separating. It is the, the sword that Jesus brings of swords. So how can this constitution of the kingdom be what separates us? except for the fact that fear is what our world runs on. It's what the world of Jesus' day ran on, but it's what our world runs on, too. We have fear of other. We have fear for the safety of our own, which is the reason we stock up on guns and security devices. We have the fear of not being able to keep up with the Joneses, which is the reason that we constantly run a rat race, focus on money all day, and try to constantly have the best house and the best cars. We have what the kids call these days the fear of missing out, or FOMO, that is a real word, uh, as much as I don't want to admit that it is, which is why we constantly chase the best experiences to try to, to, to savor everything that the world has at once. Um, so if you ever see somebody say FOMO, that's because they stayed home all night instead of going out with their friends. Um, so this fear is constantly what's running the world. It's what runs our economy. It's Fear is what causes us to continue as a, as a people, pretty much. But what Jesus is saying is, don't do that. Existing in the kingdom of God separates us. I think this is kind of what it means when we say, be in the world but not of the world, because the world is a fearful thing. We fear each other. We fear ourselves. And so... If Jesus calls us as citizens of the kingdom to sign, to sign off, to agree to the constitution of the kingdom, what he's saying is don't fear. Don't, do not give in to the natural desires of the world, but instead love, to love our enemy as ourselves. You can't do that if you fear your enemy. Love your, love your neighbor no matter what. You can't do that if you're constantly fearing what you look like in comparison to them. So not living into this not giving living into this script this kingdom not giving into the culture of fear in the world is one of the main forces that separates us from the rest of the world. So let's fear not today. Let's allow this separation to exist by showing people what the love of God looks like instead of what the fear of others looks like. I'm excited to see what that looks like and how the ways that that can show the people of the world that Jesus loves them. Amen.